welcome to the Leaders Edge podcast. I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge. In this edition, I sat down with Ramnath Balasubramanian, a senior partner at McKinsey focused on insurance and private equity topics, including strategy, digital and analytics transformations, and distribution. Also joining us is Matthew Scally, a partner at McKinsey serving private equity clients on developing funds, due diligence, and supporting portfolio companies after acquisition. His work also includes a focus on employee benefits. We discussed a range of M&A topics, including the runway left in core retail brokerage, alternative insurance acquisition targets, and accelerating the complexity of risk. I hope you enjoy it. Matthew, Ramna, thanks so much for joining me. We are here to discuss private equity investors and their role in insurance mergers and acquisitions from a variety of angles. Uh, so we'll just go ahead and dive right in. The first topic we're going to talk about is distribution in general across the insurance ecosystem. We'll break it down in a few different categories, starting with the core retail brokerage sector. So my first question for you guys is, obviously, this, this sector has been hot for a while in terms of M&A. What has made it successful for both private equity investors as well as the brokerages they acquire? And then give us a Give us a little look to what's left in that runway. Yeah, the, the what's left in the runway question is, is probably number one on, on all our diligence support that we do with our private equity clients and sponsors who are investing in the space. I guess to take your question from the top, Sandy, what has made it successful? The insurance brokerage industry on a standalone basis is, is exceptionally valuable. It's a core part of the ecosystem. Uh, it has elements that both private equity and other investors really value, and that is recurring revenue, long-term relationships, um, and clearly part of an ecosystem that generates a lot of dollars. If you look at the total amount of, of premium that's placed in the corporate market, whether it's in the jumbo section or small market, uh, it's massive. And being able to be a part of that you know, creates a successful foundation. Now, it's not all about throwing dollars into the space and you know, just allowing it to grow. Private equity is as much about investing as it is about business building, right? And, you know, given how fragmented the industry is, it's created a lot of opportunities to sophisticate um, the sales force management, um, to improve and sophisticate the placement of premiums, which creates value for the, the end customer, the insured, as well as for the brokerages themselves. And I think all of this has in, in some way led to uh, a really nice marriage between private equity and the insurance brokerage space. And of course, the other major driver that comes from it being a fragmented market is the fact that M&A and roll-up uh, is extremely accretive, again, to the, the companies that are being acquired, but also to the platform that's acquiring them. And there's, there's some simple math that's involved, right? If, uh, if a dollar of EBITDA is worth eight, nine, or 10 times in place number one, the smaller regionalized broker, and it's worth 15 times plus in a, in a larger platform, smart people are gonna come into the market and, uh, and figure out that, that arbitrage. What about that runway? How much do you think is left? <laughs> Ramnath, I'm, I'm happy to start here. Yeah, that, that's question number one on all our diligences, as well as the work we do with, with our corporate clients, our corporate brokers who are building, expanding their M&A plan. Um, this is an, an industry that has seen roll up and accelerated M&A over the last 5, 10, 15 years. 
But interestingly enough, very consistently, there's more and more folks hanging their own shingle, which means over time, there are new smaller mom and pop brokers that are coming up and, and growing their business. And the math behind this that we look at, when we talk about core EB, employee benefits or human capital brokers, plus PNC, there's something like 22,000 or so brokerages in the U.S. based on our math. Now, you have to net out some of the, 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 the single personal lines brokers, those that are only doing Medicare Advantage, for example. But we think the math is about 22,000. And we use that same methodology going back to 2016. That number was somewhere around 23,000, right? And, and the math is, you know, with all the accelerated M&A over the last five years, there's been a decrease in maybe about 3%, 3 3 to 4% of the total brokerages that are out there. So when we see uh, and talk about runway, we're, we're bullish on the ability of this to continue to occur and continue to happen. And I think a major driver will be, you know, is there still enough of that arbitrage, that multiple delta between uh, the value of, uh, you know, call it a sub 5 million revenue brokerage shop versus the, uh, the large platforms of the world. I think a lot of the conversations we tend to have with uh, with uh, private equity sponsors in this place, as well as brokerages as well, does tend to focus on M and A. And you know, Matt talked about the runway which exists and uh, why M and A has been such a strong thesis uh, for the better part of the last decade. And I think we do believe that it will continue to be an important part of the thesis going forward. That said, uh, we do also believe that you know, if, you know. At least over the next five to seven years, the sources of value creation will expand. Uh, in particular, we think that there are you know three additional sources of value creation which you know we are starting to see private equity sponsors as well as brokerages focus on. Uh, the first one really being what we call premium yield. How do you make sure that you're able to appropriately optimize, right? The uh, commission dollars you actually collect for every dollar of premium, right? And uh, uh, what we've seen a lot of brokerages do is now starting to bring in analytics to actually help identify where there are leakages, where there are opportunities for actually optimizing the premium yield. So we do think that's a big source of value, uh, particularly because the drop state of the bottom line actually has near-term impact as well. So not everyone does that well today. I mean, we've seen opportunities in the largest brokerages, but we also seen opportunities in the smaller brokerages. So that's one. Two is organic growth is going to be a big differentiator. Uh, if you see the uh, quarterly statements for a number of brokers, I think a lot of them are focused on their organic growth. I mean, over the last several quarters, organic growth has been quite robust in the industry, right? You know, mid-single digits. Uh, you are kind of seeing differentiation starting to happen there across the brokerages. I mean, there are some brokerages that are starting to click, you know, high single digits, low double digits in terms of organic growth. And again, there are a number of opportunities in terms of how you think about a sales and go-to-market model. How do you really use analytics to better identify prospects to retain clients over time? So organic growth, we think, is going to be another source of differentiation. And then finally, we think you know there's going to be this theme around better leveraging digital and analytics across the value chain, right? Whether it's in terms of you know helping you drive a core performance, everything from like I mentioned, premium yield to identifying prospects to retention, to actually, you know, in, in cases where they're actually kind of, you know, managing claims on behalf of clients, how do you really kind of do that? Uh, and then there are all other opportunities in terms of, you know, leveraging analytics in terms of creating uh, new revenue streams, right? Whether it's in terms of providing benchmarking solutions to clients or whether it's in terms of providing advisory to clients and helping them with their 
loss optimization strategies uh, to all the way from actually kind of you know creating brand new businesses. So we do think that the you know the arc going forward is going to focus a lot more expansively in terms of value creation levels, and the game will be won by those who are actually able to effectively deliver on this. Thanks, Ramnath. That was that was really helpful, and actually leads me into a question that we. Um, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but you talked a lot about the value of the data. And that's something that we, we wanted to get into a little bit in terms of, um, in terms of this, this M&A conversation and, you know, the equity in the data. Is that something that, you know, acquiring data sets, um, you know, is that something that you think we'll be seeing more from PE in terms of trying to, to make acquisitions specifically around that point and then i know there's a lot of regulation around that so how does that come into play first of all i think a lot of brokerages sit on a large treasure trove of data right it just sits in multiple different places inside the brokerage organization right you know given a lot of the policy you know systems which have kind of been fragmented over time but the the data they sit in right because uh, you know brokerages see a lot of flow in terms of core data Right. Uh, in case of the client, they actually get to see a lot of the claims information as well, geography, typography, right? So they're in a unique position in this ecosystem where they're actually kind of seeing data both from the client as well as on the carrier end, right? Uh, so I think that's a great starting position to be in. And I'm, very few of them have actually kind of tapped this data effectively because you know, it's not been a priority for most people. You know? um, what we're also now starting uh, to see is augmenting the data which exists with brokerages with data which exists in the outside world. Think about, think about uh, geospatial information about you know clients activities, right? If you're a if you're a retailer, right? How do you know how the business is doing based on you know uh, what the footfall traffic is in and out of the retailer and how does that compare with you know the retailer who's actually next to you, right? One strip mall versus the other strip mall. And there are providers out there which are now uh, starting to uh, bring to bear, I would say, different types of non-traditional data sets, which uh, brokerages and carriers are finding to be quite valuable in making decisions when it comes to you know, helping identify prospects. In, 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 if you're an MGA, for example, you can use it to actually do the first level of underwriting of risks as well. So we do think that there is a uh, significant value in terms of you know, combining data which exists with brokers with uh, external data obviously you know maintaining guardrails around PII and confidentiality which you know which obviously is something which it needs to be established and it's a, it's a thing which the foundations have to be built but we do think there is massive value I think we are at an inflection point right now in terms of how brokerages can actually leverage data to uh, to drive data level performance yeah, and the, the, the data that sits with, within brokerage houses, to, to Ramos' point, is certainly underutilized or undermined. Um, but private equity firms have consistently invested in and around the, the insurance ecosystem, and that includes service providers who have access to either proprietary data or algorithms to evaluate that data. And I think that's only going to continue. Um, there is probably going to be a, an arms race that's going forward to the service providers, as well as the brokerages, and then certainly the carriers who are underwriting these risks, particularly on the commercial lines side, uh, where you know, there, there is a lot of competing dollars 
Um, and in order to best position yourself, I think utilizing your data to the utmost is going to be even more important over the next three, five, seven years in our mind. So for PE, uh, private equity backed brokerages that have been acquiring and acquiring um, a lot over the past few years to grow, do you think there will ever be a pullback on their M&A activity and more of a focus on, you know, efficiencies, brand cohesion of all the different brands that come in from the PE investors? There, there's a few elements that drive this. I think fundamentally, as long as there is going to be a difference in the value of that EBITDA, whether it sits on a small platform or a larger, you will have M&A as one of the core drivers and core parts of an investment thesis for any financial sponsor. Now, we have seen this movie play out over, again, 10, 15 years now, and there has been more sophistication once you reach to a certain size, right? Do I want to ensure that I'm centralizing a lot of my back office functions, right? To, to ensure I'm driving as much value as possible from that. Um, can I sophisticate the, the CRM process, the sales process? And another big driver of you know, centralization post-scale, post-M&A roll-up is a succession planning. Right? The brokerage industry is, is, is older um, in terms of demographics than, than the national averages. Uh, because it's such a relationship-driven business, the importance of succession planning coincides with a lot of the scale these businesses have acquired over time. And yes, I think that has driven the more focus towards centralization. But again, I don't see it as an either-or, right? A pure graduation from an M&A roll-up shop to a centralized, sophisticated uh, broker that is not doing M&A. Uh, it is a bit of a, a balance between the two, but I don't think you give up one for the other. Yeah, and just to build on that, right? If you if the last decade was probably 90-10 in focus in terms of M&A versus some of the other value creation levers, we think the next decade will be more like 50-50, right? So M&A will still be important, will still be an important part of the overall thesis, but some of the other levels we described, right? Premium yield, organic growth, optimization, digital analytics, Will become uh, will become a lot more important as well, right? And I think, uh, in fact, the differentiation in terms of those who do this well versus not, I think, will be in part to how they're able to execute on the other value creation levels. Yeah, and 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 Sandy, I think you brought up an, an excellent point too, as it relates to value chain compression. I think what you're getting at is, you know, are retail brokers spending their time and others? looking at wholesale reinsurance, specialty opportunities? I think the answer is, is yes, right? That is another, another arrow in, in the quiver for financial sponsors as they think about diversifying their business as well as growing it uh, through M&A. And I think you're gonna to continue to see more of that. As, as we work with, with our clients, we talk consistently about what their value chain compression plan is, how do they wanna own different elements of the distribution channel outside of just retail. And I think that's top of mind for, for many of our clients and I think many folks within the industry. So we're gonna move away from the, the core retail brokerage and into some of these alternative distribution plays for PE. There's, there's, there's a, wide range of them that you've mentioned um, in past conversations. So let's just start with the wholesale, specialty reinsurance space. We continue to see increasing and accelerating rates of the complexity of risks that are being placed in the market, um, both pre and, and we believe post pandemic. So the more complexity, more specialty, uh, the more important underwriting becomes, the more important additional, let's call it distribution channels, specialty and wholesale brokerages, and then the reinsurances for the carriers. 
So as long as you're seeing and continuing to feel the acceleration and the complexity of the risk being placed, um, whether it's on the personal lines or on the commercial side, you know, I think you're going to see uh, you know, an, an, an interest from private equity sponsors following this trend uh, and putting their dollars behind it. And then it ties back to what we discussed earlier, you know, the value chain compression. Are you going to see more substantial roll-ups uh, and combinations here? I think that remains yet to be seen. And the complexity of the risk doesn't seem like it's changing anytime soon. <laughs> The, the I would say the acceleration of the complexity of the risk. Right. Yes, yeah. yes, it is going to continue to happen. I mean, you have uh, you. How do you think about valuing protecting data? And and we typically you know five years ago would discuss cyber risk. Sure, that's one piece. But what about the data as it's as it's essentially insured in and of itself, as opposed to you know client risk, right? You talk about the value of of, of NFTs that are that are happening now. Well, once you start placing a specific value on a data and it's compromised, what happens then? And how are you going to underwrite that as a carrier? And how much risk do you want to keep that on your books? Um, you know, how much do you want to offload to the reinsurers? Yeah, the, the NFTs would be a whole other conversation that potentially we can have <laughs> <Yeah>. another time. <laughs> um, so another one that you had you had written about in in the in a re recent report as insurance marketing organizations, which I would love to hear your thoughts on. This was. A, a new one for me in terms of a, a target for PE. Yeah, I think if you look across the distribution channel um, and you look at the large scale or long tail runway of those, you know, call it 22,000 or so smaller regional or, or mom and pop-esque brokers, they are now more and more competing with uh, producers who have access to better sales channel management because they have been acquired have better access to data, right? Have better access to, to benchmarking, placement resources that exist. So how do they compete? And I think you see um, affinity networks where private equity has started to evaluate and put money towards. You see marketing agencies, as well as MGAs and GAs to a certain degree all coming together. And a lot of the general support here is how do we make you as competitive as possible as a, a small market broker to now compete against you know, your rolled up colleagues or competitions that are sitting there. So again, whether it's an MGA, whether it's um, an affinity network, right, that is helping you with your own placement in Salesforce, whether it's a marketing agency that is, you know, improving your own position in your community or getting you access to carriers you wouldn't have had access to, these are all important levers. And I think ones that will continue to grow because as we talked about earlier, we fully expect the M&A runway to, uh, to continue for, for the next many, many years. Maybe just to kind of add on, I think on the independent marketing organization space, that space is probably, you know, maybe five to 10 years behind where the retail brokerage property and casualty EV space is today, uh, for a few reasons. One is it's still highly fragmented. So, you know, there are, uh, over the last few years, you've seen kind of the emergence of what we would call consolidators, which are rolling up smaller platforms. And, you know, trying to bring, I would say, more organization, discipline, kind of, you know, you know formal support to these, uh, to the small things. And you've seen private equity actually kind of uh, participate in that space, right? Uh, a fair number of IMOs are still privately held or, you know, family owned, right? They were started by the founder and they've grown over time organically, right? Uh, and so there's still a fair amount of, I would say, opportunity space out there 
for private equity to participate in this. I think there are some inherently different characteristics between what IMOs do in terms of the product set versus you know what the retail people do. I think by design, given IMOs focused more on you know, life and annuity products, right? Effectively, think of it as that you know you need to have replacement sales every year, right? You don't have the benefit of essentially you know having a large book of business and you just kind of grow that business over time and the, the business is sticky, right? The life and annuity business essentially kind of needs to be sold every year, right? So you need to kind of sell a new annuity every year. Could be to the same client, could be to a different client, right? If you sold a life policy in a particular year to your client, it's unlikely you'll sell a life policy again that particular year, right? And the way the compensation structures work in life insurance, right? It's heavily, heavily weighted towards new sales, right? And it tails off pretty substantially when it comes to renewal trading sales, right? So the onus for, you know, the agents or the advisors or part of IMO to actually kind of go and hunt every year is much, much higher than when it comes to retail brokerage and this, right? So it is much more, uh, I would say, a spiky, deal-driven kind of uh, structure, which is why I think it's taken a little bit of time for private equity owners to kind of get their heads around this business. It doesn't have the same kind of, you know, cash flow profile, uh, certainty cash flow, cash flow profile as, you know, what they see on the retail focus side. That said, I think the opportunity which exists is really, you know, it's probably much less advanced in terms of sophistication. There's a lot more you can do in terms of, you know, supporting these small agents, mom and pop agents with, you know, marketing with lead generation so that they can actually go and to a client in, you know, in helping with, uh, you know, work with their carrier partners to define customized solutions and products, right? So there's actually a lot of runway when it comes to IMOs. Uh, and the last point I'll make is that, you know, some of the larger IMOs are also trying to diversify the revenue stream. So because they have franchise relationships with clients, they have a book of business with clients, uh, they're trying to see if they can, you know, supplement that by, you know, adding uh, RIA type of services and capabilities. So you're starting to see situations where IMOs are actually, you know, consolidating RIAs and bringing those suites of capabilities to their agents. So under the the guise of competition, right? We we've talked mm -hmm. about we have all of these different different factors that are competing in different segments of the brokerage market. So for example, we have the employee benefits segment, different competition yep. happening there. We've got the PC segment, different competition happening there. We've got different competition happening in the small versus the middle versus the larger segments of, of clients, right? So break down for us some of the more um, interesting or more relevant to our audience um, competitors that you guys are seeing right now. Just give us, give us a little taste of some of those more, um, more interesting ones that you all find. Uh, well, competitors can be a, a loaded word. I will, I will say that. Um, I think you're right though. There, there's blurring lines and, and overlapping Venn diagrams that we're seeing here. I think one piece on the, on the EV side where we've seen consistent growth is the, the PEO market, which I'm sure many of your viewership is, is, is well aware of. You know, Pre-pandemic, we would estimate roughly 4 million lives were uh, under a PEO employment model, which means their workers' comp, which is on the PNC side, technically a PNC line, you know, is being placed through those, those entities and, and it's aggregated. 
Uh, a bit of a misconception is, is that all those lives are pulled into a centralized or master health plan. I think that's not the case. I think majority of PEOs offer that. Something like really 30 to, to 40, 30 to 50% of lives uptake that. But that is certainly uh, premium commissions and or fees that are being pulling, pulled out of the small end of the broker market and aggregated up. And it's not revenue that's leaving the distribution channel, but it is being consolidated because these, these PEO providers themselves have their preferred um, one, two, or three brokers, typically more scaled, not as localized. It varies very differently if, if you know, you are a, a large scale PEO with 500,000 plus lives, um, worksite employee lives, WSEs, versus some of the micro-fragmented PEOs that maybe have 10 or 15,000 lives. But at the end of the day, you, you're seeing that as a tool that's consolidating this. Uh, and it's been in a very effective way uh, for, for businesses to uh, improve their premium costs, right? Because they're, they're getting larger scale um, per employee workers comp uh, charges to them. Uh, it's also a way for them to outsource simultaneously some of their traditional HRIS, whether it's payroll or benefits administration. So it's a model that, that we think is going to continue to grow off that four million base. I think we've estimated it, it could grow in the in the ten or fifteen percent per annum range, uh, which means five or, or seven years from now you could have eight million plus lives in that space. That starts to be meaningful and to dimensionalize it, you know, we think there is roughly call it thirty five million lives that are addressable by the PEO market. So even that 8 million number doesn't really kind of reach that, that ceiling or threshold. That's an interesting place. And, and how you compete uh, with a PEO model is going to be very important more and more so for some of the regional mom and pop brokers. And that again ties back into, well, what additional services are you going to be able to provide? Are you partnering or, or hiring or acquiring insure techs in and around that space? I know there's many others, Ramat, if you want to pick one or two as well to, to go into. Yeah, again, maybe the only thing I'd add over here is that, uh, again, uh, wouldn't call it kind of necessarily uh, competition, but uh, in the employee benefit space, for example, um, this convergence between health and wealth is increasingly becoming relevant, right? And so as brokerages look to kind of you know, provide the full suite of capabilities and services to their clients. How do they you know, add on to what they're doing on the health side with capabilities on the wealth side? So you're seeing you know, cases where they're collaborating with RIAs or in, in other case, cases where they're actually acquiring RIAs right, to bring those capabilities to their clients. So I think you're seeing this trend in terms of, you know, I have a client, right? How do I kind of you know, maximize the full suite of value and services you can provide to clients. And I think you're going to see increasingly uh, them extending out in terms of areas which you know, may not have been kind of you know, natural sweet spot for them a decade. And one of the things that I forgot to mention when I asked this question was it's really competition for the end client, right? It's yes. who's getting closer to that end client in the work that they're already doing with the PEOs. That's a great example. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, just another example, Sandy, would be benefit administration, right? Which is, you know, again, if you look at kind of work, the workplace being kind of where, you know, is the primary kind of channel for accessing clients and customers, then, you know, who really owns that end client relationship, right? Today, it's a very dynamic ecosystem, right? You have, you know, benefit consultants, obviously, you know, who historically had the relationships with employers. You had the benefit administration platforms, right? Which, you know, 
started off, you know, with 10 years ago, were more kind of for transaction processing, but now are kind of providing the full front end in terms of engagement capabilities. You have the advice, uh, guidance and advice firm, still quite niche, but again, they're playing a valuable role over here. So you started to see a lot more convergence happening there as well, right? You're seeing brokerages who, you know, acquired benefit administration platforms, right? Because, you know, the, you know, things are moving away from this employer to employer sales to actually, you know, voluntary and more employee driven purchases. So, you know, having that point of access is important. You're seeing, uh, you know, carriers actually also trying to acquire some of these benefit administration platforms. Again, all in the spirit of, you know, how do you get deeper and deeper access to the end client? Because the game is shifting, right? From just being B2B to being B2B to C, between the employment and that's a really important point, I think, that, that Ramnath brings up. And I've, to be a little provocative here, uh, I think the brokerage industry as a whole has done a phenomenal job of adapting, continuing to add value, maintaining their relationship, and, 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 and really being a trusted partner for the insurers. But one area where, where, where they may have slipped a little bit is, is seeding some of the administration and also, by the way, the enrollment capabilities to other players in the ecosystem. And we think that's going to be coming more and more important for a few reasons. The first is just the general move to the consumerization of healthcare, right? You continue to see the growth in self-insured lives, um, as well as uh, a model where consumers, not just millennials, but, but, but employees and consumers as a whole are taking more of a control of their healthcare uh, spend, their management, whether it's through health savings accounts, um, or just an active role in it. And that is the transition that, that, that Ramnath is talking to. It's not just a B2B component where I own the relationship with the CFO, with the benefit manager, with whomever. Um, it's also a relationship with the employee that matters. And as healthcare becomes more consumerized, as we potentially have more remote work environments, the enrollment and then the guidance and advice that the employee, the consumer, needs um, and ingests is going to be becoming more and more important. And I think brokerages really have to think through what is their plan for enrollment period? What is the plan for our employer's employees? Um, and how are we going to stay very, very relevant in that space? So one final question as we wrap it up, I'm still looking at the global economy. I'd love your guys' thoughts on just different financial recovery scenarios over the next couple of years. How do you see this playing out in terms of the PE space? Well, Sandy, I'd say that you know, it's, been, uh, it's been remarkable how resilient the economy has been in 2020, despite everything that has gone after it. And I think it's, you know, it's a function of you know, interventions and what governments as well as central banks have done across the world. Uh, I think we remain cautiously optimistic about 2021 and the path forward beyond that. And you're starting to see you know, that in the indicators around us as well, when it comes to consumer sentiment, you know, manufacturing pickup, uh, you know, the last two or three quarters in terms of economic growth. And you're starting to see that optimism clearly reflected in the deal environment, right? If you're seeing, uh, you know, the deal environment since uh, late summer, early fall of last year, it's probably been you know, the hottest deal environment we could ever experience, you know, uh, as much as, you know, we can go back. Um, and so I think we expect the deal activity to be fairly robust uh, in the coming quarters and, you know, for, for most of 2021 and, you know, into 2022. You know, there is, you know, and uh, there is huge kind of pool of capital out there uh, looking for, you know, investment opportunities. 
Now, this also means that you know the competition for these deals is going to go up is going up significantly. We've seen that as well in terms of you know uh, the multiples that you know some of these assets being traded at. You've seen obviously you know special purpose acquisition vehicles as you know a big source of you know alternative kind of uh, exit strategies for a number of these players, right? And that's going to continue. I think it only emphasizes the point we made at the beginning of this discussion is that the R for value creation has to be more expansive, right? It cannot be just reliant on one or two things which would do well, which is you know, largely M&A or consolidation driven. It has to be a lot more holistic. And frankly, I think to be able to justify these premium valuations, you have to demonstrate that you can execute on those value creation levels better than anyone else. Yeah, to, to, to end on a somewhat positive note, you know, I, I fundamentally believe private equity plays a core and important role in, in our economy. Uh, everything from providing pensions, endowments, um, other, other capital sources with access to middle market private growth companies, uh, to sophisticating and growing those companies, right? They're in the business of building businesses, as I said a few times. And I think that that role isn't going to change in, in the near future. And um, uh, I'm bullish on their ability to, to execute on it, even with some of the multiples uh, <laughs> growing. So it sounds like we can we can potentially end here on an optimistic note. Um, <laughs> more action in the commercial insurance industry to come. Um, it's going to get interesting. We'll get into data. We'll get into AI and, and hopefully be able to continue this conversation um, as we go forward. Yeah, as you said, I mean, who would have thought insurance can be cool, but it is. <laughs> I, I, I love it. It's, it's great. Um, Matthew, Ramnath, thank you so much for this time. It's been fascinating talking with you, and I hope we get to do it again soon. Thank you. Wonderful Sandy. connecting with you, Sam. Thank you. That was Matthew Scali and Ramnath Balasubramanian of McKinsey. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to tune in to the rest of our podcasts at leadersedge.com.